2: Hello, and welcome to Financials Podcast, Future Rich. I am your host, Barbara Ginty, and I am also a CFP, which is a certified financial planner. And I am here with my guest today, Erin. Erin Lowry, did I say your name right? You did. And you are the author of Broke Millennial, and the author of Broke Millennial Takes on Investing. Yes. So we are going to talk about your second book. We can also talk about your first book, too, um, if you'd like, but... Your second book, I think, is a topic that a lot of our um, listeners would love to talk about, and we haven't talked about it much, which is investing your money.
1: And really, the two books play off each other, because you don't have to have read book one to read book two, but you have to have taken the steps from the first book to be ready to start investing.
2: That makes sense, because I think, as most of the listeners know... Um, there usually is a checklist before you start investing and you put a really great one in, in your book and I think I think Doug Boneparth. Yep. Um he's a CFP that I've I've met and I know from the 40 under 40. So I think he helped put together the checklist of what you need to do to really be ready. He did. Yeah. And so normally step one is not get money going the market.
1: No, it sure isn't. And I like to refer to it as putting on your financial oxygen mask, obviously harping on that whole, put on your own oxygen mask before assisting Mm -hmm. others. Mm -hmm. It's really the same with your money. You have to have a strong foundation before you move on to putting any sort of risk on your money. And a lot of those, the checklist really starts off with something that seems easy, but I think is the most complicated part of the process. And that is setting your goals. Now, whether that's for saving or investing, you need to sit down and think through what are my short-term, medium-term, and long-term goals. Different experts kind of have different metrics of what constitutes short, medium, and long-term. For me, I generally say anything from tomorrow to three years away is usually short-term. Four to 10 years is usually medium-term, and 10 years plus being long-term. Now, if you're on the shorter end of a medium, let's say four to five years, hypothetically, you want to buy a house you still might not want to put a whole lot of risk on that money because that's not actually very much time, especially when you're talking about the stock market. So the big first thing you have to do is sit down and set these goals. Once you set your goals, now that's going to inform really all the other decisions you make. But you're not ready to start investing yet. You have to do other things like pay off any consumer debt you might have. So any credit card debt for example, paying off any consumer debt, so credit cards being a great example of that. You have to get that gone before you really start thinking about putting any risk on your money and putting it in the market. And reason being for that, oftentimes with credit cards, we think the interest rates often going to be between 15 up to 25 even 30%. The odds of you seeing those kind of returns in the market especially consistent consistently are pretty slim. So financially, it just makes more sense for you to slay that credit card debt first. There is some nuance to student loans, which we can come back to that later. And you need to be current, obviously, on all of your payments. You need to have an emergency savings fund. That really is critical before you start investing. I am very much in the camp of do not invest your emergency savings. There are some people who would argue with that, but... To me, I just don't think it ever makes sense to put risk on that money. It needs to be liquid and it needs to be in a savings account, preferably one earning a lot more than 0.01%, which if you haven't checked your savings account interest rate, you need to.
2: Right, because you probably yeah, like 2% right now.
1: Yep. And I will say there's a little bit of fluctuation happening right now. The market was heating up for a long time. Then the Fed made its announcement about benchmark interest rate. So there's a little bit of a drop off, but still you can get 2%, 1.9%. And that's a lot higher than 0.01%. And also, and I know everybody hates this word, but you got to have a budget. I like to call it cash flow. It sounds sexier, less painful, but you do have to have a very intimate understanding of how much money is coming in and how much money is going out before you even really think about putting any risk on your money.
2: I'm glad that you brought up the budgeting or cash flow because it's something that a lot of people don't like to talk about and kind of skim over. And I think it's really important whether you call it budgeting or cash flow or having a handle on your income, but it is really important. It's critical. And especially because... I know
1: a lot of times people think of it as a constraint that you can't spend your money how you want. But really, I think that that takes a repositioning of how you're considering a budget or cash flow and think that figuring out exactly how to control your money enables you to splurge on the things that you value instead of just trying to constantly be putting out fires with your money. It really is what enables you to break out of that paycheck to paycheck cycle. So it's liberating in the end.
2: Yeah, yeah I, I agree because it takes you from being reactive to proactive. Absolutely. And the final thing
1: on the checklist is this idea of investing for retirement, which means technically you are investing, but a lot of times when people talk about investing, they don't mean putting money in a 401k or IRA. They're asking questions about how do I as an individual put money on the stock market? Who should I be turning to? Should I be using apps? Should I be using a robo-advisor? All those kind of questions. But if you have money in a 401k or an IRA, and assuming it's not sitting in cash, you are an investor. And that's really the first step that you should be taking in terms of investing.
2: I agree. And I've actually already used that saying, because when we had talked to set this up and you're like, well, it's investing for retirement. And I was like, just that change in the term makes such a difference with the perspective.
1: It does. Language is so powerful. And I remember making that mistake myself. in. I was earning taxable income going into my senior year of college, and I said something to my dad about, oh, I was listening. I was actually listening to Clark Howard, and I said, uh, he said something about you should set up a Roth IRA if you're in college and you make money. And I goes, yeah, you should probably be investing. And I said, oh, that's investing. I'm not ready to invest.
2: Yeah, I don't want to invest. I just want the Roth IRA. (laughs) Yep.
1: And it is really that language has power. And if we shift to saying invest for retirement, I think in the beginning, It might be a little intimidating to some people and there are kind of ways around that that we can talk about later, but it's about taking back that power and control and empowering yourself to be like, hey, I am investing.
2: No, absolutely. And I think getting started with retirement is usually an easy way because there's a lot of features with the retirement accounts, especially through a workplace plan that can make it easier to get started. It can and
1: you might even have a match. So there might be quote unquote free money on the table at your disposal.
2: Yeah. And free money is it's always wonderful. And when you think about it as a visual, like someone actually put money on the table and you didn't take it. Because I think that people forget that you can't go back and get the money if you didn't sign up for it. That and it is really hard to
1: backtrack in the future and try to make up for not investing earlier. And that's one thing that I always try to make clear in presentations when I talk about compound interest, as well as in the book, is I think a lot of us will think to ourselves, eh, I'm 25. I have other financial goals. I'll worry about that when I'm a little older. And there's kind of two problems with that. One, it's a lot harder to take back that time. Even if you double down and make, let's say that you were going to put $400 in the market at 25, but now at 35, you're going to put $800 in the market. Mm -hmm. You still probably aren't going to catch up to your 25-year-old self putting in half the amount of money. And I would say the other issue is life tends to get more complicated, not less. Yeah, and it so, always
2: gets more complicated. Yeah, <laughs> and
1: even if your debt's you know paid down and you're making more money, you still might have higher expenses, mm-hmm. which means maybe you got married, bought a house, started a family, all these things that cost a fair amount of money, and now all of a sudden you're making a lot more, but you still don't have a ton of extra money to throw into a retirement
2: account. So that's why it's important to start early, even if it feels like just a little bit. Yeah, a little bit makes a big difference. And I think in the book, you quoted Albert Einstein, who called compound interest, the eighth wonder of the world. Yep. Yeah. And and I teach a class and then we use the example, would you rather have a million dollars today or a penny doubled every day? I think it's for 30, 30 days or 31 days. And the, and the penny doubled works out to be 10, I think it's $10.7 million. Which is just crazy. And it's... <laughs> I
1: love the simple illustrations of how much impact small things today add up in the future. And it's so easy to relate this to pretty much any area of your life. But I think with money, when we can quantify it in such a simple way, it just makes you think, oh, wow, I could just make a small tweak today. And same goes with debt. You know, a lot of times we talk about this with investing. But if you're trying to pay off any sort of debt, paying even a little bit above the minimum amount due is going to shave significant amounts of time and lower the amount of interest you pay overall over the course of paying off that debt.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, compound interest can work for you if you're starting to invest for retirement or starting investing in general, but it can work against you when you're talking about your debt. And it is a real
1: pain when it is working against you.
2: You do not want it to work against you. You want it to work for you. Um. So, what would you? So, you you did you interviewed a ton of experts for to put together this book to get advice from everybody from Elvest to um, smaller financial advisors to I think Acorns, Betterment. So, you've talked to everybody. It feels like mm-hmm. like all of the industry experts. What would you say, and then you put all of your advice into the book. So for somebody who is intimidated with investing, besides buying your book and reading it, which I would highly recommend, if they were just listening to this podcast, what would your recommendation be? The first
1: thing you really have to do is educate yourself. Again, not plugging my book specifically. There are a lot of great resources, many of which are free out there. Just want to make sure that they're credible. And I would always fact check multiple ones, depending on where you're looking. But the reason very early on in the book, I have an entire chapter dedicated to terminology, which is not the most fun chapter, but it is the most critical. And that's because investing often feels like a foreign language. And I liken it in the book to sitting in algebra class when I was in eighth grade. And I remember the teacher throwing out terms like coefficient. And if you don't know what that means in the first place, you can't solve the problem because you don't actually (laughs) understand what's being asked of you. And same is true for investing. If people are throwing around words like compound interest, time horizon, risk tolerance, asset allocation, index fund, stock, share, what have you, and you don't understand what these terms mean, one, you feel like you're not smart enough to do it, which is false. You just have to learn the mm-hmm. language. And two, it just feels so intimidating and I just encourage everyone to start the process, whether or not you're actually ready to be investing outside of a retirement account today, you should start the learning process because then when you are ready, you're just ready. You can hit the ground running and start going as opposed to having to go through the whole education piece and then get started.
2: Yeah, I would agree with you. And it's its own language, just like any industry, right? So, but, you know, everybody's in the money game. So you should definitely learn the terminology and And your book provides a great breakdown of the different accounts different account types, different jargon you're going to hear, how it all operates. So that would be, your, so start with education.
1: Yeah, it would be starting with learning the terms. And I wouldn't focus too much on any of the theories. That's one thing I asked a lot of the experts was, well, you know, you. for example, if you're interested in looking at some of the micro-investing apps that are out there, you might see mm-hmm. stuff like, we use the Monte Carlo simulation in order to blah, blah, blah. And you're like, what the heck does that mean? And so I posed to a lot of the experts, do I really need to understand what that means? And they're like, no, it's not really that critical to building a basic and effective investing portfolio. So while I say educate yourself, also don't go so far in the weeds that you're circling back to feeling totally overwhelmed and freaked out.
2: You like start reading up what it is and you're like, okay, this is too complicated. I'm done. Right. And I also would recommend
1: as you get started to just keep a list of words, because unfortunately what happens a little bit with investing is you have to use certain words to explain other things. So if you're reading the definition of, for example, asset allocation but you haven't figured out quite yet what an asset is, you have to go back to understand that before you can move forward. So
2: just make sure that you're kind of keeping a log because it creates this little spider web of understanding everything. I think that's a great idea that you write it down. I never really thought about that yet, but if you don't know what an asset is, asset allocation isn't going to make sense until you know what it is. Right. And I would also say start
1: focusing as much as you can on feeling in control of your day-to-day financial life because if you don't have that budget or if you haven't faced your numbers and figured out an attack plan for your debt or whatever it is, Not only are you really not ready to move on to the investing phase, but you're trying to skip steps, and it can then feel overwhelming on two fronts. So it would focus on what is easier to get in control of now, and that might be cutting expenses, but also trying to increase income and pay off debt. And then once you've got that totally on lock, you can move
2: and level up now to investing. That makes sense. And so with paying off debt, I think so many of our listeners and so many people in general have student loan debt. It's such a big issue. And I do think that a lot of people feel overwhelmed that they can't start doing anything until they get rid of the student loan debt.
1: And that's not true. Yeah. And the
2: reason I say that, you know,
1: there are some experts out there who speak about debt as though it is sinful, it's the worst thing you can do, doesn't matter the type of debt, you have to be 100% debt free. And while that's a great theory, it's not very practical for a lot of us. And I would also say that with student loans specifically, one of the critical things to do is evaluate the interest rates. Now, I asked every single expert, should you be investing while you're paying off student loans? Almost unanimously, they came back with the same conclusion, and that was 5% interest rate being the cutoff on whether or not it makes sense for you to be investing. Now, before I move on to explain that, there's one caveat. If you have an employer-matched retirement plan, take advantage of the match. So let's say that your employer will match you up to 3%, put in at least 3% so you're getting that full match. You're still investing, and now you're automatically putting 6% away for retirement, 3% from you, 3% from your employer. That was what they all listed as the caveat. Now, you want to get that free money. And let's say that you've gotten everything else. There's no consumer debt. You've got an emergency savings fund. You've got a really strong gauge on your cash flow. But you're still chipping away at those student loans and you might be feeling like, Ugh, one, I don't know if I'm supposed to be investing. Two, I just feel like I should be and like I'm getting behind, but it's going to be another couple years before I can pay off these loans. Kind of two schools of thought here. One school of thought is no one really regrets paying off debt aggressively and getting debt free. So maybe that's the strategy that you want to take. Outside of investing for retirement, you're not putting in any other money in investments, and you're just focusing every extra dollar on slaying that student loan debt. That's one option. The other option is to look at the interest rates on your loans and decide whether or not it mathematically makes sense for you to be investing at the same time as paying down those student loans. And 5% was the cutoff I got given, meaning that if your interest rate is at 5% or higher on your student loans, math is probably gonna work out in your favor to just focus on getting rid of those student loans. But if you have a really low interest rate, maybe you just lucked out with a federal loan or maybe you refinanced to a lower rate and it's sitting somewhere between like 2 and 4%, well, now it might work out in your favor to instead be investing the extra money instead of just aggressively paying down your student loans. Two schools of thought, You have to actually run the numbers to determine what's best for you, but you also need to be introspective because let's be honest, personal finance is very rarely actually about the math of it all and more about your emotional relationship to things. So if the debt is keeping you up at night, just get rid of it. Absolutely.
2: Yeah, that's the interesting thing because there's, as as you're saying now, there's two schools of of thought on this. There's really no right or wrong answer. It's really what's going to work for you. And if you're staying up all night worried about it and it's creating anxiety, then maybe you're better off paying it off. And I would think about it sort of in a similar way of looking at debt payoff plans, like the
1: debt snowball compared to the debt avalanche. Mm -hmm. Debt snowball, meaning you're focusing on the smallest debt that you have. You're not paying attention to the interest rates and you work on paying that off first and work your way up to the biggest one. So you get those little happy psychological wins along the way that keep you motivated. (laughs) Or Avalanche, where you list everything from highest interest rate to lowest interest rate and you work on just crushing highest interest rate first. So in the long run, you pay the least amount in interest. Most people are going to respond better to debt snowball because they want those small wins along the way. But then, like myself, there are those of us that are very numbers motivated when it comes to money and it's like, oh, I'm so inspired to crush it based on interest rates. So there's two different ways. They're both effective. They both work. One is, quote unquote, the mathematically correct way, which is avalanche. Yep. But if that sets you up to screw up and self-sabotage because you're getting sick of paying off debt, go with Snowball. You still achieve the same result in the end.
2: Yeah, at the end of the day, the goal is to get rid of the debt. So yeah, so you would save more interest with the bigger one. But if you fall off the wagon, yeah, I agree. So you just have to pick what works for you. Which is the beautiful part of personal finance. <laughs> <laughs> Very personal. So what would you say with interviewing all these people and writing this book? What w- Was there something that you learned that was unexpected that you didn't know about before or hadn't heard of before? I would say for me, one of the
1: most interesting chapters to write was towards the end where I talk about what wealthy, what the wealthy people are doing differently to handle their money and kind of mm-hmm. the lessons that we can take from that. And I love any sort of story about whether it's... You know, free ports where they're buying art and storing it technically offshore so that they don't have to pay taxes on it yet. Not saying I love that they do it, but I love learning about all these weird loopholes that exist for people. So those ch- that chapter to me was one of the more interesting ones to get advice from people because some of the advice was the old standard, listen, the same things that you're doing, the very wealthy are doing, and that's minimizing taxes as best they can that's being really mindful of how they're spending you know even if you're ultra wealthy you still have metrics on what you actually value and where you want to put your money they said and you know starting early taking advantage of compound interest some people still leverage debt but it's in a very different way than how kind of your basic consumer would be using it but one of my favorite things as well i guess there's two other favorite takeaways one was one woman who worked with ultra wealthy 25 million plus net worth individuals at a major uh, investment firm. And she talked about seeing someone whose product she actually used, he sold it and then put his money in a great. A, a GRAT? A GRAT, yes. A garret. you can say the acronym. It basically was a way to shield this money from estate taxes to pass it down to the next generation. And he specifically saved
2: like 50 million or a hundred million or something just absolutely bonkers. By doing it by doing high end. Yeah. So there's grats, gruts, cruts, crats. They're like high end estate planning mechanisms. right? And it was a grat and her
1: big takeaway, because it was more interesting, not just that there was this loophole that existed for him to use, but her emotional reaction to this Which was her basically saying, I use this product that he developed, and then he sold this product to a company, and I use all of their products. So I am making this man so much richer, and I need to figure out how to get in the game. And it was, it actually ultimately inspired her to quit her job and start her own company. But it was just a very interesting thing to watch her thought process through observing the ultra wealthy, where she said, Not only am I sitting here helping them stay rate- richer, I'm not even on the bench. I'm like the water boy way off to the side who's not even participating, and I have to figure out how to participate. And I thought that was so just
2: interesting to watch someone else's reaction to being around that level of wealth. So, for that example, it seemed very attainable for that person. Having watched the whole process, that's right. And it Is was, it- and it's not that she necessarily thought she was going to get to the
1: like half a billion mark, but it was more that I am just helping these people stay rich as opposed to making myself rich. And ultimately, yes, you can, of course, work a traditional job and you can spend less than you earn and save a lot of money and invest well. But the other option is to figure out how to create a product or service that other people want. And that's more in her mind, the direct path to wealth. And Got it. that was what she was inspired to then do. And I would say my other favorite line was from Sally Krawcheck, who is one of the founders of Elevest, And she talked about how a lot of times we don't think about emerging markets and not necessarily just in investing in an emerging market in the economy of maybe an emerging country, but also figuring out that, hey, if I'm graduating college and going into an industry that is rather stagnant, I have to be 10% better than everybody else to rise up. But if I move into an industry that is emerging, or if I move to a country with an emerging market, then I can just be almost average and achieve more success than someone who has to be top of their class at a stagnant industry. And I thought that was such an interesting way to think about career development and the way that you can build wealth. And I've actually also seen that play out in my personal life with some of my friends who pivoted early on into the tech industry and whether they like spent, you know, a few thousand dollars to go to a boot camp and learn how to code or learn about UX, UI, and have one of them, I know she like 7X'd her salary from what she was wow. making before. Now she wasn't making a huge salary before, no. but still, and you know, yeah. it's interesting
2: that I've seen that advice truly play out in real life. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think that you bring up a good point um, that you can do all the right things and pay off your, you know, pay off your student loans and start investing early with your retirement account and then learn how to invest on your own. But another way to increase your net worth is to kind of take a step back, just like you would with getting control of your cash flow and say, okay, is my career going to give me the opportunities I want to get to the level I want? Or do I need to be in a different industry? Or should I be an entrepreneur? So also looking at it from that perspective is interesting. It is. And that is not
1: to say that the classic start early, be consistent, look for tax advantages, live well below your means. That is all very effective advice too. And it works. But- People people like hacks, and these really are not so much (laughs) hacks, but if you're able and willing to take a risk, sometimes they don't pan out, and sometimes they pan out in very big ways.
2: Absolutely, and that's chapter 14, right, in your
1: book? Yeah, I should have my chapters memorized, to be honest, but (laughs) I know it's towards the end.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's chapter 14 where you interview everybody to see what they've learned from working with wealthy people, what the takeaways are, and- what I've seen with working with wealthy individuals, it's usually not the people that you think. Like they don't look wealthy. Mm-hmm. That's what I've noticed. The, usually the people that are the self-made millionaires tend to not look like they're millionaires. They're not what you would expect. Right.
1: And wealth signifiers are different to different people. And I think that mm-hmm. that also speaks to spending in a way that aligns with your values. And maybe those individuals don't actually value whether it's the watches or the purses or the nice shoes that are an external indicator that hey i'm a wealthy person but perhaps the way they either vacation or services that they purchase or what have you that's more of the ways that you're seeing how they're spending their money or maybe it's charitable giving or saving money to pass down to build generational wealth there are just different ways to think about it.
2: Absolutely. Um, so one more question I have for you, just to kind of round out the investing component of it. So as we know, the stock market goes up and then the stock market goes down. So you wrote a whole chapter on how to brace for the downturn. Yep, which is coming yeah, for us all. Coming, <laughs> yeah, it's going to happen. What goes up must come down. Yep. And So what would be your advice, like a high-level summary of what to do when it goes down? I know you kind of highlighted what happened with the various downturns that we've had, but we haven't had one in a while. Yes, which means for the last year and a half,
1: two years, everyone's been predicting one, which means that Mm -hmm. some people have been hesitant to even enter the market because of those predictions. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I like to talk about off the bat with that chapter is the history of the market. Because I think it's helpful. I'm, first of all, a history nerd. I love history. But I think it's helpful to put in context the fact that we have had very low lows and they come back around to a high high. And if you keep trying to time it, you're going to lose out big time. And if you sell when it starts to go down, you're also going to lose out. And one of the quotes that I really liked was from a woman who works at Vanguard. And she talks about with timing, you have to make three decisions. You have to decide when to get out, when to get back in, and what to do with that money in the meantime. And timing all three of those is very, very difficult. So the better play is to build an investment portfolio that's curated to you, to your goals, to your risk tolerance, and to when you want access to that money. And it's therefore designed to weather the ups and downs of the market. And the same woman who gave that advice also talked about how in 2008, she was working at Vanguard Her job is dealing with the stock market. And for a full year, she did not look at a single statement because she knew she wasn't going to like what she saw when it came to her personal money. So she just kept putting consistently automating money to go into her accounts, buy what she had planned to buy, and just didn't look because she didn't want to have the emotional reaction of wanting to sell. And so not only did she get to buy on a low, she then got to ride it out when it started going back up and made a decent amount of money off of that behavior. So that would be one of the big things, is if you're gonna be a nervous nelly about the market, just don't look when the market is taking a downturn. Or if there's someone that you can call and talk to, pick up that phone and talk to somebody, or send that email. There's a reason that people who work with robo-advisors automatically get an email from them whenever the market takes a dip. It's like, calm down, don't worry, we plan for this, do not sell, because they know that that's your knee-jerk reaction. So that would be my... Right, because it's an emotional reaction. It is. And it totally makes sense. The other thing too, that I always love to give the advice of learn how to decode the way the media is talking about the market. Because if it bleeds, it leads. That's how it works in journalism. Sells. It sells and it gets those clicks. And so that's why you're going to see inflammatory headlines like worst drop in Dow Jones history and things like that that's going to start to cause a little bit of panic, but you also have to put it in context. So in the book, I talk about how we saw a dip happen in the markets and you saw headlines that said things like worst drop in Dow Jones history, but the Dow Jones was still up from where it had been just six months prior, even with that big drop. So the Dow Jones was at the highest point it had ever, ever been. So with that drop, it still was really high. But technically, it was true that it was the biggest drop in history. So you have to learn how to start to decode a little bit of what they're talking about and how they're talking and understand that ultimately they are competing for clicks and purchases and your eyeballs. So they know that the inflammatory stuff works and try not to let it get you panicky.
2: No, I think that's great advice, especially with the 24-7 news cycle. Because they can never go on TV and be like, oh, the Dow is down a couple hundred points. Don't worry about it. Because then you change the channel. And that's not interesting. And so they are yeah, not interesting
1: at all. <laughs> they're gonna try to engage with you, but you just have to be careful. And I would also just say to remember if you're feeling panicky, this is a normal feeling and to take a beat often advice is to take at least 24 hours before you hit the sell button on anything one just see if there's another fluctuation and maybe it's going to go back up and two it gives yourself a moment to feel a little bit more rational about the the experience
2: yeah oh absolutely i think that i mean they even say that with writing emails right Mm -hmm. especially if you're mad if you're mad you should wait so if you're scared you should also wait Well, Erin, this was really helpful. Any other advice you have for our listeners since we really haven't done very much on investing at all over here? One
1: thing I would say is there's a lot of people who will prescriptively tell you what to purchase without knowing you at all. Mm -hmm. Always be wary of that advice. And I'm not saying it's because that person is nefarious, but what I'm saying is that person has no idea who you are, what your goals are, what your risk tolerance is, when you need access to the money that you plan on investing. So it's hard to just throw out a piece of advice or a recommendation without having that level of information. So anytime you're going to make a decision and when you're going to do some research, make sure that this is also an investment that is tailored to you specifically
2: and not just what someone is telling the masses to buy. Right. But it's a a specific recommendation for your situation and not just a generalized nugget. Of advice. And there's
1: always going to be these sensational things to be investing in, like the cryptocurrency, like cannabis. There's always going to be iterations of those things. And mm-hmm. I would say to anyone who's interested in getting in on that game, make sure that you're just using an amount of your portfolio that you're willing to lose because you have to hedge your bets a little bit and protect. The future version of yourself. A couple of years ago, I met a young man who's about 25 years old that had invested all of his money in Bitcoin. Oh no. And I don't think he sold before the dip happened. So he was riding high at the time, but he also lost a lot of money when the bottom kind of fell out on crypto. So just... Make sure that you're putting an amount of money in there that you're willing to lose and maybe you don't lose it and you make a lot of money. But then if you do lose it, it's not going to tank your financial life.
2: Yes, absolutely. I think you need to think about today and like what's, you know, as you said, there's certain things that are popular today that might not be popular in the future or they could be, but that you have to protect your future self.
1: Yeah, it's an incredibly important part of investing is the idea of mitigating your risk and Taking, making calculated moves.
2: Wonderful. Well, this is super helpful, Erin. I really appreciate you coming on because we've done, as I said, very little on investing um, because as a licensed person, I don't like to talk about it and because it's really specific to your situation. Um As you said, it is. I
1: understand. And thank you so much for having me. And I will also say I'm not licensed, which always makes people wonder about me talking about it. And I like to say that, especially in the investing a book, and I talk about this actually in the very beginning, I function in the role of more of reporter and then translator. And I said, I went and interviewed a lot of very smart, experienced people and figured out how to distill their wisdom into a way that felt very accessible for your average rookie investor.
2: Yeah, the book was wonderful. So where can everyone pick up? Where can they find you and where can they find the book? You can find me at BrokeMillennial.com, on Instagram at
1: blog, and on Twitter at BrokeMillennial. Also, I do an Ask Me Anything every single Wednesday on Instagram. So if you have questions, feel free to come and join And then also you can buy the book really wherever books are sold and also check out your local library.
2: And if they don't have it, you should request it. Oh, that's a great idea. Support the local libraries. It's a great system. And so for our lovely listeners, you can rate and review us on iTunes and you can follow us on Instagram at Planancial. And then if you want to learn more about personal finance, you can take our class that's in partnership with SUNY Ulster at www.planantial.com.
3: Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you in- enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about.